Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Sarah Dosange, who is a qualified and accredited psychotherapist. After struggling with binge eating disorder and episodes of bulimia for more than a decade, she has gone on to specialize in helping others recover from binge eating. In 2020, she self-published her book, I Can't Stop Eating, which reached the Amazon bestsellers list. Today, we're going to delve into the origins of binge eating and how one can overcome this challenging condition. Sarah, I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you doing? Hi, Alice. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm doing well here. It's still morning time here, and I'm pretty good in the morning. I'm a morning person, so I appreciate the recording time. It's 4.30 here, and my brain is just starting to go, I'm a little bit tired now, but we'll, we'll stick with it. We'll stick with it. I'd love to really dig into this subject. It's something that's really close to my heart, and it's something that is so emotive as well. And with a largely female audience. I'm not saying that this condition only affects women, but I you know, speak mostly to women. I know that there is such a huge body of people that follow me that binge eat, whether that be periodically, whether that be over a prolonged period of time. Um, and it's something that's such a shameful, unfortunately, you know, it shouldn't be, but it's such a shameful topic that's shrouded in kind of secrecy. Um, and I really want us to have a, a kind of an interesting conversation about how the condition manifests, speaking about your own experiences as well, because I know that it's something that you've gone through personally, and really trying to give tangible take-homes for people that are listening that maybe can't get that direct help right now to, to manage their condition, that they might be able to take away and really you know, input into their own lives. So I'd love to start by talking about how you kind of went on this journey to, to healing your own binge eating disorder. You struggled with it for a long time, as I said in the introduction, for more than a decade. Can you talk to me a little about what this was like for you, you know, when you were going through it? Firstly, I want to comment on, I struggled with it for more than a decade. And at the time, that seemed like forever. But now I've worked with people, it's been 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And they might, somebody might be listening to this and think, oh, a decade, I've been struggling for 15, 20 years. And I think that comparison piece can come in or how come they struggled for a shorter period of time compared to me. So I just, I think I wanted to name that off the top. I used to think 10 years was a really long time. And now that I'm 40, I realize 10 years is not necessarily as long as it really feels when you're in it. Um, I always want to preface my story as well by saying that the onset of my binge eating, I think, was a bit atypical in that it didn't start until my mid-20s. And I believe that one of the big triggers for it was two things. I think it was like a perfect storm. One, there were some hormonal problems going on, which I didn't know about at the time. I realized later on that I had a pituitary tumor. So I have hypopituitarism, which means a lot of my hormones are just on the low end of the scale. So I take a wide range of hormone replacements. But because the tumor was in the pituitary, it was also pressing up into the hypothalamus, which is also where the appetite center is. So one of my symptoms of my hormonal problems was this excessive appetite. And I know some people can relate to this in different degrees with things like hypothyroidism or PCOS. There are so many things that are going on in our body. The biology of this as well is often not spoken about as much because we don't understand it. There's so much going on in our bodies that we don't understand. So in my mid-20s, for the first time in my life, I tried to lose weight. It was the first time I'd done it. And I did it in what I thought was an extremely sensible way. I did a, a hypnosis CD, as it was back then. And it was basically a hunger fullness diet. You wait till you're hungry. And then when your hunger has passed, you stop eating. And I did this for a couple of weeks, lost a small amount of weight, which was all I wanted. And I was delighted. I thought, this is so easy. I was so arrogant at the time thinking like, why doesn't everybody just do this? Um, but after those cu first couple of weeks, when I stopped doing it, I could not stop eating. And what followed from just two weeks of this, 
and losing a very small amount of weight turned into nine months of solid binging. And it wasn't that the binging stopped at nine months. It's just at nine month point, I developed purging behaviors. So I became bulimic because I was so frightened because my weight was going um, up and up. And I don't talk in numbers, but I went up several clothes sizes and looked very different in a very short amount of time. Then when I found out about the hormonal problems, I was like, great, like this is the answer. When I fix my hormones, like everything will be fine and I'll just go back to exactly how I was. Um, And it wasn't as simple as that. One, maybe biologically, we can't get it as ideal as I would want to be from a health perspective. But also I think there are other things now that I understand this more that made me very vulnerable to something like binge eating. The first one, the classic, which I'm sure we'll get into, is the black and white, all or nothing thinking. That is, I, I don't think I've met anybody that really struggles with binge eating that doesn't recognize that in themselves. It's this whole idea, if I can't eat perfectly, if I can't eat quote unquote well enough, then why am I even trying? And we're really vulnerable black and white thinkers to the what the hell effect. Mm-hmm. You know, telling ourselves, right, this is how we're going to do it today. And then the minute we slip or we don't, you know, these these kind of middle steady eddy people would just go, oh, so I, I ate a little bit more than I wanted to. Oh, well, and then get on with their lives. Um, but for others of us where that investment as well in our appearance and how we look and weight means that our reaction is, is much stronger than that. When I started taking the hormone replacement, the binge eating eased off a bit. And what I mean is before I had night eating syndrome as well. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I have. But do you want to just go into it? Yeah. So it's, it's basically waking up in the middle of the night to eat large quantities of food. It's another type of eating disorder. It goes into the other category. And I would wake up at three, four in the morning, even still feeling full from dinner because I would have binged at dinner and I'd be getting up and eating again and again. And I was really, really frightened about it, actually. That eased off with the hormone replacement, but I was still, still binging still going through bouts of bulimia as well and I just couldn't understand why I couldn't fix it. I decided to become a therapist while I was still struggling with an eating disorder. Not thinking I was going to work with eating disorders, I thought I just, it made me, getting ill made me rethink my life and purpose and all of that kind of thing as I think it just shifts your identity sometimes when you're not well. And so I decided to train to be a therapist and I thought I'll just stay away from eating disorders. Um, so what that meant is I had to go into personal therapy. And whilst I didn't work with therapists who understood eating disorders, none of them were specialists or understood anything about binge eating, what it did give me was that space every week to talk about myself and look at myself and understand how I think. And at that time, I was also absorbing everything that I could find out about binge eating. There was no one talking about it on Instagram. It was way before then. I did find the intuitive eating book in 2010, just randomly in a bookshop and read that. Um, Tried it for a while. It was really helpful. Then I just sort of discarded it because I didn't really understand how to implement it and went back to it. I think the next part of it was realizing, and this, you know, maybe this is pertinent to some of your listeners. I didn't relate to the whole rhetoric around restriction causes binge eating because I was thinking I'm not restricting. I remember going to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and I was so nervous before my first meeting because I thought, you know, what if I uh, what if I look at a place? What if people look at my body and think I'm not big enough to have a problem? And when I got there, I was actually the largest body in the room. Um, so I was really confused by this because it just didn't relate to me. And then through the intuitive eating, I guess, and the last supper eating idea, I realized how even planning to restrict was triggering my binges. So every day I was doing that whole tomorrow I'll do better, tomorrow this is how I'm going to eat. And then, of course, it was unrealistic because of the black Mm. and white thinking. And then the minute I went over on the following day, I ate something I wasn't going to or ate too much, that I've blown it thinking comes in. And as soon as you then say to yourself, I'll start tomorrow, it's like, well, then now is the only opportunity I have to eat all these foods. So I was binging almost every day in anticipation of the next day getting it quote-unquote right. So that, for me, realizing that, was absolutely key and probably one of the last pieces of the puzzle was understanding how that even even the planning part so I also drew quite a lot on like Eckhart Tolle's work about present moment here and now I realized that when I was resisting that was unbearable and then I'd want to binge the minute I thought oh this moment is unacceptable I'm unacceptable I just didn't want to be there so then I would use food as a way to numb out so there were a few different levels So I feel like I've gone through the hormonal stuff. I've gone through the whole mental restriction around food. And I've also gone through the cycle of using food to numb 
and to just check out and manage more than managing emotions more like managing a chronic state of probably shame and just dissatisfaction with who I was so then self-acceptance work was something that was really helpful for me and continues to be because that's always an ongoing practice I think yeah thank you so much for sharing that because that was honestly like there were so many touch points within what you were saying that I could absolutely relate to um I think that the I'll start tomorrow mindset is something that not only myself but also so many people that I've worked with as a trainer succumb to you know it's the I'll start tomorrow so fuck it let's just go all out today because I'm starting tomorrow and it's just like that horrible feeling of shame that comes with a you know, a binge that I think is so debilitating for some people or for anyone that kind of experiences it. But one of the things that I actually just want to go back and tap into first is really explaining what binge eating is, because I think that actually it's a really misconstrued um, concept, i.e. I think a lot of people think, oh my God, I ate so much food in the weekend. I was a real, like I had a real binge eat or whatever, and kind of use it quite colloquially. Um, when actually, you know, what you're describing there is is a full-blown eating disorder and something that needs, you know, specialist help. So I kind of would really like you to, in your own words, define what you see binge eating as being um, and how you define it with your clients so that we can really dig into what it actually is. Yeah, it's helpful to think that there are two ways of looking at it. You've got clinical binge eating and you've got the more colloquial use of binge eating. And both can be equally valid. Someone might not fit the criteria of binge eating disorder but it could still run their life. They could still, you know, be obsessed with food and absolutely miserable when it comes to food and really be impacted. So I tend not to worry because I'm a private practitioner. I don't have to diagnose people or anything. But the clinical definition of a binge is eating what is considered to be a large amount of food. They, they describe it as more than most people would eat in similar circumstances. So really, if you haven't eaten all day and then you eat a whole load of food... You could argue that wouldn't be a clinical binge because actually that's what a lot of people would do in similar circumstances. So that's one part. It's a lot of food, but that's still subjective, even in the clinical definition. And then it's within a discrete window of time. And the example given is around two hours. So there's something that um, we, we can call a slow binge, which goes on almost throughout the whole day. That wouldn't come under a clinical binge, binge eating, but it can still have that same compulsive feel to it. And then the last part of the binge, which I think is the bit that crosses over between clinical and how we might use it every day, is the sense that you have lost control. And more than that, it's compulsive, whereas impulsive is more like, you know, you didn't give it any forethought, you grabbed it, and maybe afterwards you regret it. Compulsive is where it feels like you are acting against your own will. Like it, it feels like you're not even really making the decision. Some people describe it like a switch going off in their brain, or suddenly they're on autopilot, or that the feeling and the desire for the food is so overwhelming that they can't think of anything else until that feeling, that urge to eat has been satisfied. You are absolutely right. There are those kind of two breakdowns of it and two ways in which people might relate to the word binge eating as such. One of the things that I really want us to, I guess, understand and, and talk about more is, is this idea of control. Um, I know that from personal experience, binge eating for me was that feeling of complete lack of control like there was no off switch and it was always that it was something that I did in secret so I never did it in front of people so it was almost like this complete inability to stop myself from eating whatever I could get my hands on and I think as well like what's really important to talk about is the idea that it's not a pleasurable experience you're not eating food and enjoying the taste of food you're eating food exactly as you said earlier in my circumstance anyway was completely to numb it's not a pleasurable experience. It's actually like really unpleasant, um, but all stemming from that idea of control. And I wondered if you could talk about how you really break down this idea of, you know, you talked about the black and white thinking, the kind of all or nothing mindset, the control around food. How do you help people to kind of break down that mindset? First thing I want to comment on the pleasure part, because some people might think, oh, I think I do enjoy it. And actually, I think what it is, it's relief. So because the tension has come quite often when you first start to binge, there's an initial moment of relief and release of tension. Some people might interpret that as pleasure, but a lot of people like you would say, I don't, I'm not even enjoying it. I'm not even tasting the food, but there is this sense of, of, of relief. I think that often comes, I think as well, control gets a bad rap, right? We talk about eating disorders as all being about control and it, 
people even say, oh, I'm, I'm such a control freak. And sometimes if you know someone in your life who's very controlling, it tends to not be a very attractive quality. But what control is really about is safety. So I'm not even sure if the word control is helpful because control is almost the mechanism to try and create safety. So if we're looking at what is the function of control, it's to feel safe. So why are we feeling unsafe? And that's probably going to vary a little bit from person to person. There'll be many people out there who don't feel safe existing in their body because of anti-fat bias out there, because they can't get the treatment that they need, or because they feel judged or rejected this sort of societal level of what it is we're supposed to look like and be like. So that's one element of safety. But there's also safety in terms of how we feel about ourselves. I can remember one of the scariest things was empty time. So if there was a weekend and there was this empty afternoon, the idea of this empty chasm of space, like in my rational mind, it's fine. It's just a few hours on a Saturday afternoon. But a sort of at this nervous system level, the thought of that empty space just felt unbearable. I had to fill it. I had to fill it with something. Um, and that was often food. If I couldn't fill it with something else, then food, food will have to do. That'll be what it is. So I guess when we are looking at how people are trying to understand this and what they can do, it's understanding why is it I don't feel safe. Certain emotions are not safe. We're, we're expected to, you know, the goal in life is to be happy, right? So anything that's not happy means that we're getting it wrong, which then evokes shame. Shame doesn't feel safe because shame is like, oh, everything's wrong with me, but I am me. I have to be me, but everything's wrong with me. Uh, that's where I would start with that is looking at where do you feel unsafe? That last part of that answer. Wow. It's so powerful because I think you're absolutely right. We're almost told that anything other than being happy and positive, And really, I felt this from a from a kind of, I guess, maybe higher lens is that on Instagram, um, if I'm anything other than sometimes being happy and positive, Alice, that's always smiling and always happy. I feel a deep amount of shame around it. Like if I, you know, I'm, I'm going to reference something that I did yesterday. I just got a bit frustrated by something and I wrote this thing and within like 20 minutes I deleted it because I was so embarrassed that I kind of let my guard down and showed that I was frustrated or angry or anything other than happy, positive Alice. And I think you're absolutely right that we're almost conditioned to believe that any other emotion on the spectrum is is wrong unless it's like happy, positive, great. And Can I remember I when I first... Yeah, Can of I course. just comment on what you just said? Because how we feel connected and safe with other people is often through vulnerability, right? That's, that's the moments we feel closest with someone when we see their vulnerability. But what we need is we need safe places to be vulnerable. Sometimes people take it and like, oh, okay, that means I'm just supposed to be vulnerable with everyone and then I'll feel connected. And Instagram, like the lens that you're under, how on earth can that be a safe place for you to be vulnerable? So then you have to test the waters, like how far can I be vulnerable where I, I still come across as authentic, right? But if I go too far, there's going to be a lot of judgment that comes my way. And that's not safe, especially at a time when I'm feeling vulnerable. I think you're in an incredibly, almost like a no-win situation when it comes to like, how do you connect? Yeah, it, it is. And look, I've done it for like over 10 years. So I also think there's an element of just fatigue of like, I... I I think it's hard because I definitely think that I'm not turning this into my therapy session, I promise, but there's definitely a disconnect between myself and my Instagram now. And it's not that I'm not authentic. It's that I am so guarded because I've been so burnt so many times of showing a bit of myself that I feel is being vulnerable, but it's not quite gone down the way I wanted it to. So then I feel, oh, I can't share that part of myself. So you become so censored that the the part of yourself that you share is just this tiny sliver and it feels very safe, but you know, then you exist in these two worlds. You exist in the, I'm in the online space, Alice, and I'm in the offline space, Alice. And I think that I was going to say, you know, before, be uh, before we spoke about this, that one of the best things that my therapist ever said to me was like, it's okay to be angry and it's okay to like feel all these things. And I remember having this conversation with her about her saying, you know, like, I'm really happy to see angry Alice today and her actually like finding joy in it. And I was like, God, this is so weird. Like, I didn't realize that it was it was okay to feel all those things and um, just giving yourself permission to to feel absolutely normal human emotions was really big for me that that like I don't have to be always great all the time basically. Um, yeah. And I think that you're absolutely right in the online space there is certain vulnerabilities that are okay to share but if you go anywhere past that it's like oh no it's too much now. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's like there's such a fine line and a fine balance of of giving of yourself without giving too much that people go, oh God, no, that's a bit, 
that's not quite right or I don't yeah. I don't like that um yeah. well for you being angry is a form of vulnerability right because it's not an emotion you're comfortable for with sure so anger for, for sure. you is vulnerability but there'll be many people who won't see it as vulnerability they'll just see it as aggression and then there's yeah. the much more judgment for being angry especially as a as a woman in this space absolutely we'll be back after this Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I wanted to go back to one of the things we were talking about. Um, and I wanted to talk about self-sabotage because I feel like um, for me um, and for many people that I've spoken to, there just seems to be this element of, and I'm sure you're going to reframe it, but I'll, I'll, I'll say what I'm going to say. There seems to be this element of wanting to align themselves with one way of doing things but unfortunately almost having this overwhelming sense of self-sabotage and that they will never quite get to where they want to get to. So fuck it, let's just, you know, throw it all out because because I'm 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 never going to be that, so I'm just going to sabotage myself. And put don't feel like I'm explaining that quite well, but do you understand what I mean? And I feel like that really sits in that space of binge eating particularly around food that you know, many clients that I've worked with on a personal training sense, not not obviously in a kind of um, binge eating sense, but um you know, they'll come in and they'll say oh, well, I went out for dinner on a Saturday and had a glass of wine, so fuck it. I came home and, and it was just complete self-sabotage. And so Sunday was out the window. And, you know, it's just that constant kind of cycle of, well, I, well, I ruined it for myself, so I'm just going to ruin it completely then. And I just wondered how you help people with that mindset, with that idea of kind of just sabotaging themselves. Um, and I'm, I'm even going to stop there because there's even more I could say, but I feel like you already have a really good answer to what I'm saying. <laughs> You've got a good read on me because I am going to reframe it. In fact, one of my favorite <laughs> podcast episodes I recorded on this was, we recorded on this was on self-sabotage. Okay. Um, so great. some of this, I kind of want to credit my podcast co-host, Steph, because this is stuff we've spoken about together. So some of this will be her thinking that I've adopted. Um, so if you think about what it means to be a human being, I like to think of it in parts, right? We've got different parts of us that want different things and that are different things as well. Like you've got a generous part. I've got a generous part. We've also got selfish parts. We've got vulnerable parts. We've got guarded parts. And we've also got parts that want different things as well. We've got parts that want control and parts that long for not having to control. So when we're looking at something like self-sabotage, it looks like, oh, I'm just working against myself. I'm just trying to deliberately harm myself or hold myself back. But usually in self-sabotage, there is a part that is in conflict with what you are trying to do. Because when we are all in alignment with something and there's no resistance in us, this is just what we want to do and this is just how we're feeling, then we do it. It's only when there's a part of us that's conflicted about it. So if we're talking about food and what that might look like and someone says, okay, I'm going to go out tonight and I'm only going to order this and I'm not going to drink any alcohol, the part that then wants that, has that, and then goes, oh, I've blown it, like that might be the part of us that wants to be free, the part of us that wants to feel free to make choices, the part of us that wants to be involved in something because we're watching everybody else enjoying the food or enjoying some alcohol. And so when we shift it around and go like, there is a part of me that is resisting this, there's a part of me that wants something different. And what we do, we just try and fight with the parts we don't like. And that doesn't work because that part is a part of us. And the more we fight with the parts we don't like, actually the louder they cry out for our attention. So if we can acknowledge, okay, there's a part of me that feels like this, there's a part of me that's not on board with this and get curious about what that's about, that's when we can do a better job at negotiating between the different parts of ourselves. Because to be a human being is to live in conflict with ourselves about a lot of things. We feel this and we feel that, or we feel this one day and we feel that the other day. When we can accept that and rather than think that we are supposed to always feel 100% in alignment about everything that we do, when we accept it, it loses its energy and then we can come in as like the gentle negotiator, listen to the parts and when we listen without judgment and they get to have their say, sometimes they calm down a bit because the part that might be reacting, it might not be true what they're reacting about, 
They might be afraid of losing their freedom when then you're not going to lose your freedom. But until you listen to the part of you that's fearful that you are, you're not going to be able to reassure yourself on that level. We keep trying to deny that these parts exist. And I think that's where we end up in a battle with ourselves. And I want to just tie that into what I feel like it's in direct relation to, which is body image. You know, I feel like this idea of self-sabotage so much of it is connected to controlling our weight and controlling um, our body composition. Obviously, like for me, so much of this stemmed from being in a very, very small body and having complete control. And then as soon as any of that control was relinquished, it was like, oh my God, I'm out of completely out of control. Um, so it's been such a journey of, you know, working that out. And I think that um, a lot of people who I feel will, will be listening to this might say, but I actually don't really want to go all out and listen to that part of myself because part of me wants to stay in a smaller body or wants to stay small and in just completely saying fuck it <laughs> I'm going to use it again I've said it quite a few times across this podcast sorry guys but in saying that um they the fear of weight gain is almost too much do you see what I mean so like they're dealing with these two sides of themselves and it's almost like they're completely split in two on the one hand they want to listen to that voice and have fun and enjoy food and do all the things they want to do but on the other side they're I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to be in a bigger body. I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm not actually comfortable with maybe the feeling after doing all the stuff that makes me feel good. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is exactly the conflict people have because there's so much out there that's saying if you want to heal from something like binge eating, you have to let go of the desire to lose weight. That's what a lot of people out there are saying. Well, how do you let go of a desire that feels as strong as it does, that's probably been around for many, many years and is constantly being reinforced in our culture. And so this is where I think it's, we tend to like take this big picture look, like how is it I need to look at this situation in order to get to the result that I want? And I think if we bring it back to the here and now, so like depending on where someone is with their relationship with their body and their relationship with food, the question is, what do I need to be focusing on now to heal if healing is what you want? So people panic because they're projecting into a future, well, if I do this thing, that means that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gain weight and I'm really frightened about that. And actually the question then becomes that for a lot of people is what happens to your eating the more focused you are on your weight? And each person really testing that out because all very well people saying, if you do this, this is the result. Like we are terrible at taking advice. We can hear good advice and go, oh, that's good advice. And I'm going to take that advice and even mean it. But this is, this is where the inner work is, and this is how we make shifts, is actually asking ourselves these questions. What happens to my eating the more focused I am on weight? Okay, where do I need to put my focus today? Not tomorrow, not next month, not what's going to happen in a year. The mind's going to do that. Of course it's going to do that. And we notice it does that, and we remind ourselves. We ask the question again. It's a little bit like with meditation. The idea is not, not to silence the mind, but you keep bringing the mind back. You keep bringing the mind back. Because life is only happening here. And the more we live in the future, the more anxious we become. Like people are frightened of this idea of um, body acceptance. Oh, well, if I accept my body, does that mean nothing changes? It's like you're not accepting a future. You're just saying I'm not going to resist how my body is today because resistance just equals more, more pain, more suffering. And uh -huh. I started instead of using the word body acceptance, just allowance, body allowance. Because people are frustrated that I can't accept it. I'm, I'm too uncomfortable. I'm too unhappy. Okay. Can you allow your body to exist today as it does? Because it's going to anyway. So you can either allow that and try and ease some of that mental and emotional suffering. Or you can keep saying to yourself, no, 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 no. It shouldn't be like this, but it is. No, 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 no. It shouldn't be like, but it is. Do you see what I mean? It's that fight. As Byron Katie says, you can get in a fight with reality and you'll only lose 100% of the time. I would love to hear from you whether you do see with your own clients that you work with that direct connection between poor body image into a binge phase into a shame phase back into a poor body image phase and you know breaking that cycle must be so challenging how do you just get someone to start to take steps to break that kind of horrible vicious cycle just to clarify for the listener then the binge cycle is often depicted as a circle and at the top of the circle you've got binge which is you binge and then after the binge you feel the guilt the shame disgust all those horrible feelings that come after the binge and then as a reaction to that you try to control because you feel out of control. So you try to control whether that looks like restriction, whether it looks like planning to restrict, whatever that might be. 
which then leads to binge urges. The attempts to control triggers urges to binge, which takes you back to the binge and round and round the circle you go. Everybody wants to break the cycle at the binge. Like, I just don't want to binge. And then if I don't binge, I won't go back around the cycle, right? But actually, if we think about our behavior, it's been said that if you want to understand what you're feeling, what you're really feeling and believing, look at your behavior. So if the behavior is, you know, restriction and then binging and the feeling side of it, we've got the shame, we've got the guilt, we've got the disgust. That's where I think we need to work. You mentioned right at the top of the episode that there's so much secrecy and shame around this problem. Of course there is. I've seen it in the research where they say low self-esteem is one of the causes of binge eating. And I thought, huh, maybe. But also, if you struggled with binge eating, and you can probably answer this for yourself, Alice, how many times have you said to yourself and meant it with every fiber of your being, I'm going to do it differently from now onwards with food? Hundreds, probably, maybe thousands. Some people say every day, that's how I feel. But then we can't, right? Because we always try and change the way we eat by trying to change the way we eat, by just trying to change the behavior. So the brain then can only conclude, well, we can't do this thing that we really want to do. We really want to control our food and control our bodies. Why can't we do it? And the conclusion is, there's something wrong with me. Like I'm broken in some way. And so that shame and guilt that comes after a binge is not usually just about, oh, I've just had a binge. I feel guilt and shame about this binge. It's normally that, you know, the despair and the beating up where it's like, I'm ashamed of every single binge I've ever had and all the future ones that I think I'm going to have because I feel utterly hopeless which is a devastating place to be. So no wonder we crawl out of it by trying to go like, it's okay, I'll do better tomorrow. I'll control, I'll manage it. So really, I think the first place in breaking this cycle is to work on the shame. And I think that begins by conversations like this, people listen to when you're talking about your lived experience, when I'm talking about my lived experience. I think that's reassuring for people. Also connecting with other people who are in it as well. And there's more opportunities now in online spaces to connect with people who get it and to understand that this is not some kind of like moral or personal failing. And I often say the the way to tell the difference between whether your eating is disordered or whether you're just struggling a bit with regulating your your food intake, which let's face it, a lot of people do, even non-disordered eating, it's that the harder you try, the worse it seems to get. And this is where people spiral down. And I thought this for the longest time. I thought the reason why I hadn't recovered was because I wasn't trying hard enough. I wasn't doing all the things I was supposed to do. And that, until we can challenge that story and that there's a belief that there's just something wrong with me. Otherwise, you'll always come back to that belief if it's a core belief. So your behavior will keep reflecting that belief. And so I think we do that through safe connections with others and finding places where we feel understood, where people are speaking in a way that resonates with us. Um, Obviously, therapy is great, but not, not everybody can access that. I appreciate you mentioned um, Overeaters Anonymous. I I haven't personally been, but I do know someone very close to me who has interacted with a group. Um, I wonder if you could maybe explain what it is. And, you know, obviously I'm so sure some people have heard of like things like Alcoholics Anonymous, but maybe not um, for the OA. So like Alcoholics Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous and all of those, it's a 12-step program on addiction. So Overeaters Anonymous looks at compulsive eating as an addiction, which I personally think is very problematic because we know that restriction is such a big trigger and driving force behind binge eating. So when you're saying, oh, you have to abstain from binge eating or abstain from your binge foods or foods you feel compulsive around, you're then setting yourself up for this restrictive relationship with those foods. And I've met many people for whom Overeaters Anonymous has made it worse. And I'm not saying that it doesn't help some people, but I was in, I went for seven months, I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I was never able to get onto the abstinence part of it and what I also notice in Overeaters Anonymous which I know is different in AA and NA meetings is there are very few people in those meetings that are quote-unquote abstinent so you're going to an Overeaters Anonymous and the majority people there are still struggling with compulsive eating whereas if you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting most people there the majority of people there tend to be sober if not everybody is sober so it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, it doesn't convey, but one thing OA did give me was it gave me the one place where I heard other stories that were like mine. And I actually found the people in OA to be wonderful people. So I don't want to slag off something that might help some people, but I really do struggle with the program a bit. There's now Eating Disorders Anonymous, EDA, 
And I went along from a curiosity perspective to one of these meetings a couple of years ago. And I was really impressed with it because they were just sharing small wins. So people were going around and just sharing all these little things that they were doing that were helping themselves with their eating disorders. The thing is, all, all the programs are a little bit different. All the meetings are a bit different. And there is a kind of a slightly religious or higher power spirituality element, which is not going to resonate with everybody. But it's free. Um, and it's widely available across the world, especially now online. So if you needed a space to just be with other people, it could be it could be a lifeline for some people. But I, I'm I'm not a fan of the abstinence program because often it looks like giving up sugar and flour, foods like this, which I think could cause certainly did for me cause more problems and left me feeling like I was constantly failing at this program. I thought yeah. there was something wrong with me again. So the one aspect it exacerbated the shame of not being able to fix the problem. But on the other hand, it, it soothed a bit by being around other people. Yeah. And let's go into that. You know, food freedom is something that I think a lot of people want. They want this ability to, you know, like we all have a friend, and I'm going to reference them, who can just eat what they want. They can just eat what they want and they stop when they want. You know, they're the person that can maybe have half a biscuit and just leave it there or, you know, a few scoops of ice cream and just be done with that. Um, and I think for many people coming from a binge eating background, they long for that idea of just being able to have food freedom where they have a little bit, but they're fine and they can stop when they want to. Um, obviously, you just said then that you are not keen on the abstinence part of things. So you want people to still be eating the foods that might be, you know, triggers for them or whatever, or I could be putting words in your mouth there. So feel free to interject. But how do you help people to get to an element of food freedom where their relationship with food is vastly improved without that tipping them over into a binge yeah yeah so I, I would start by prefacing it it's I, I, I all I want for people is for them to feel free and it could be for some people an abstinence approach makes them feel free and if that does all power to you just that's all I want for people um, but I think for the majority of us we have that rebel in us we have that part that pushes back against that and that and I, I, I always thought the job was I had to somehow cage my rebel. Instead, I actually had to bring her closer and get to know her. And now like, I, can, I can calm her down with a lot of things so she doesn't take over in the same way. So one of the things I sometimes get people to think about is I'll ask them, what is it you want your relationship with food to look like? People really struggle with that because then they'll start saying to me things like, well, I just want to not be thinking about food all the time and I want to not this and I want to not that and I'm like okay that's what you don't want how do you turn that around and say it in the affirmative what do you want it to look like people really struggle to answer this question so we don't even know what it is we're trying to create we're, we know what we want to get rid of but if we just spend all our time trying not to do this thing then we just end up like constantly battling with the thing so I often talk about recovery as more of a creative process that you are trying to create something for yourself that is less compatible with binge eating as opposed to you're trying to get rid of it. Because quite often the binge eating is performing a function. Like it's trying to help in some way. So there can be a real sense of loss, fear of a loss of freedom, or fear of all kinds of things in giving up a behavior like that. So I encourage people to come up with three words to describe their relationship with food, what they want that to look like. So I'm happy to share mine. Mine's balanced, regulated and free. So when it comes to it, making a food decision, I need to feel free, but I also want to consider what's going to help me feel more regulated. So typical example, if I'm going to have a, a lunch or a dinner, I know that if I have a combination of protein, fats, and carbohydrates, that that is going to be a more satisfying option. That's not to say that's always going to be the case of what I have. I might be somewhere and it, that might not be possible. But I know that. So that's in there a bit. But I also have to feel free. So I also have to know that I can go out for lunch and, I don't know, eat something that's mainly carbohydrates. So that needs to be in there too. So we're trying to strip it back rather than going to what you, when you just focus on behavior, you start telling yourself, this is what my food decision should be. I should be choosing this. I should be eating like that. What I'm trying to get people to do is to come back to their decision making process what are the factors? Because we have to negotiate with ourselves over food every day for the rest of our lives. People say, I just want to not think about food. I'm really sorry. That's not going to be possible. <laughs> it's not possible for anyone. I get it. You don't want to stress about food. You don't want to get yourself into a conflict about food. So when people have got their three words, they can use that as like an anchor 
So somebody's might be satisfying, um, pleasurable and calm, for example. So if they're trying to make a food decision out of the options, what's likely to bring them those three things, the closest to those three things, those experiences that they can. And we're never going to get it right, but they become like anchors, those words to come back to when we're trying to make a decision and there's so much confusion. Because for me, confusion was a big binge trigger. I'd be like, I'm confused. I don't know what to eat. So I might as well binge. Like that was honestly the logic at times. If I don't know what to eat, it's, it's just going to be a binge instead. And I, and I also think when your relationship with food is so damaged, like even thinking about food is problematic. Like it almost just becomes so overwhelming. You're like, I know that I need to sort of eat well, but I'm so torn on what to put in. And my relationship with food is so tarnished that I just, you know, and you almost like just tie yourself up in knots because it always just becomes so complicated to think about what to eat for every meal of every day. And I think one of the things that I've actually found really helpful is just to bring it back to, you know, I used to share elaborate meals on Instagram all the time. And unfortunately, I don't do that anymore because my meals are now quite simplistic. And that doesn't mean to say that I don't, again, exactly as you said, allow myself to have other things and, and be very kind of like varied in my diet, maybe if I'm eating out or whatever, but generally at home, I find that simplistic meals mean that there's very little kind of extra thought or noise that needs to go into a meal. I don't really worry about, you know, what I'm making or this or that. It's just making a very simple meal and I really enjoy that and I sit and I savor it and I eat slowly and kind of, you know, heal that relationship with food basically where it becomes much more pleasurable to eat. Um, But I think that when your relationship with food is so damaged, I can totally see or even thinking about what to make for lunch or dinner, but just becomes this big kind of, you know, inner turmoil. Yeah, exactly. And simplifying, I think, is enormously helpful advice for a lot of people because they've got so much knowledge in their head about nutrition and what they think a meal is supposed to look like. When actually they've looked at people who are very regulated with their eating, um, they tend to eat pretty similar stuff, you know. And the other thing as well, which can feel like a bit of a sacrifice for me when I was struggling with binge eating, fixing my food, that was my life purpose. It gave me a lot of purpose. Like this was my job. My job was to fix this thing. And so whether I felt good about myself, or whether I felt bad about myself hinged on like, how was I doing with my food? So I got to feel amazing about myself sometimes when I was getting it right. And I felt terrible. And I think the recovery place can often feel really boring because food no longer becomes this marker of whether you're doing really well or whether you're doing terribly. And it doesn't hold that control over you, which almost in a way, like it kind of, you know, it, even though it's not pleasurable, it's something to focus on, um, which I think can be a massive thing. I, I really feel that, um, you know, the diet culture industry and the calories in versus calories out and the uh, the 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 whole landscape of the last ten years around food and health and well being whatever has really unfortunately damaged a lot of people in terms of their relationship with their bodies and food. And I'm really excited to have you on because I do feel like you are a voice that cuts through the noise in a really credible way. But I feel that there are still so many people who find themselves in this tricky balance of um just not having a good relationship with themselves and their bodies and I think that um, I'd love to hear from you to kind of finish you know if someone is wanting to I guess move to a place of food freedom or as close to that as possible whatever it looks like going back to your three words whatever that looks like for them um, body acceptance and allowance um, what would you say is the first thing that they can do I know we've kind of covered this but what would you say is the first thing that they can do to get themselves on that path? I realize this is massively oversimplifying what is mm-hmm. a really complicated thing, but it just breaks my heart that I know that there are people listening who maybe can't afford or can't get access to the help to people like yourself, you know, on a one-to-one basis. And I just feel that it would be so valuable to understand a little bit about that first process of, I just need to feel a little bit better in myself or feel better about myself because every time I log on to Instagram someone's telling me oh my god it's so easy all it needs is calories in calories out you're just not dedicated enough you're just not committed enough you know whatever just quieten that noise and for them to find some sort of peace so interesting you mentioned that so I guess the first thing I'd want to say is about curating your feed oh yeah because (laughs) we live in a world of opposing voices 
So if you are trying to change your mind or shift the way that you're thinking about something, you need to try and get something like the thing that you're trying to create. Those are the voices that you want in your ears. I mean, if it's okay to do a little plug, my podcast is called Life After Diets. And the whole reason we called it that is because it's all very well. You see it on a 10 second Instagram reel, right? Don't diet, nourish your body, eat enough, have the cookie, do this, do that. Okay, that's all very well. Like we're not dieting, but now what? How do we develop this better relationship with food? I also think that the intuitive eating book is a really great place to start. So intuitive eating, what it does is it sets out a framework for what a healthy relationship with food looks like. And I would encourage people to consider, each person gets to test this out for themselves. What about this idea of switching it to, how do I improve my relationship with food and my body, as opposed to how do I change my behavior around food and how do I make my body look a certain way? Like, does that resonate? For some people it's gonna resonate and some people it's like, no, I'm not there, this is what I want. And for me, the real shift came where I was able to let some of this stuff go, was it became a choice between freedom or what to me felt like this cage, okay, but of trying to control my body. But I wasn't even very good at it. So this is where other people might find this an even tougher, like Sophie's choice, right? Because maybe you can control your body size, but it comes at this enormous cost. That I think is sitting with that conflict and being like, okay, because what are the things that I value? I have a really strong rebel. So I know one of my big values is freedom. So I can see feeling trapped and confinement where it doesn't even exist. I feel like someone's trying to trap me, even though that might not actually be the truth. So maybe that's what made it a little bit easier for me to go, no, I choose freedom. Like I want freedom. But I also think that a lot of the things that people think changing their body is going to give them maybe they could find that in another way. So when I say to people, what would happen if your body was different? Oh, well, I would, I would be more connected to people. I would be more sociable. I would do this. I would do that. And rather than going like, okay, I need to fix myself first. And then I'm going to engage with life in the way I imagine I want to. Can we switch that around? Are you willing to start engaging with life? Part of us resents that because we want to go into our little cave, fix ourselves where no one can see it, and then come out as this less vulnerable better version of ourselves and that I think is that belief that keeps people stuck because you're never actually going to feel that so it's that willingness to come out and be vulnerable whether it's whatever it is that you're holding yourself back from doing until you have fixed this problem I see people who won't date for years because they're like I have to fix my eating disorder I have to fix my body I have to fix myself before I can get into a relationship and I'm like "Mm, can we start showing up as we are I can't tell you how many messages I've had from girls and women who are due to go on. And I'm going to reference Hindus and particularly girls holidays where they're like, I just can't go. I can't go because I can't be. And you know what? It's so interesting. It's always women in front of other women. We are hardest on ourselves. And I, it's been recently, actually, I've just noticed such a flux of getting these messages from people that are like, I'm working on food freedom, my body's changed, but I just can't go on this girl's holiday or on this girl's trip or on this Hindu because I just can't be seen in front of these women. My body's changed, I just I just can't do it. And I relate to it so you know, much because I've been there and I know that feeling and I know what social restriction feels like when you're like, I am not acceptable to be seen right now. I can't feel, I don't feel my best so I can't be seen by anyone else. And one of the biggest things that I've done recently is like really challenging myself to say yes to social stuff and to just have that freedom of, I'm just going to go out, even if I come home after 20 minutes, like I'm going to go out and just immerse myself and be more social. And I think that's been such a huge part of my healing process is like just having fun with my friends and not worrying about what food I'm ordering, what drink I'm having, whether I'm going to get up and go to the gym the next day, you know, whatever. Um, it's incredibly liberating, but it is hard. And exactly as you just described, I, I hear from so many women who experience that and I myself have gone through it. Like we, we just almost are so concerned about what everyone else thinks about us that we lose what we even feel or what we want to do or what makes us happy and brings us joy because we just care what everyone else thinks. Yeah. When we fall into the trap of thinking that because I feel like this about my body when I see it, other people must be feeling and thinking in a similar way. And it's just, it's just not true. Like we feel we can't imagine how anyone else could look at our bodies and just 
not really care or even like what they see, right? Exactly, yeah. God forbid. <laughs> yeah, that projection, I mean, it really holds people back. And because there'll be times as well, there'll be some reality in that for some people as well, where people have made comments about their body and about their size. So because that person made that comment that time, that means everybody must be thinking that. And the way we, we imagine that we think we know what others are thinking. Whenever I catch anyone doing that, I catch them. Whenever anyone's doing that, when they're talking to me, the question is always like, when you're saying other people are going to think this or they're going to think that, is that what you're thinking? Invariably, it's yes. Like these are your thoughts, your things, like own them as your own. We keep putting them, plonking them in the mind of everyone else because we can find evidence culturally to say everybody must be thinking like that. The final thing that I would say in that as well is if your entire relationship with your friends depends on how you look versus who you are, I'd find other friends. <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's that. My, my biggest learning. <laughs> yeah. And perfection isn't connecting. So if you've got someone in your life who looks perfect, you know, or let's say you, someone fits this social ideal, that's going to ignite jealousy, insecurities in other people. We tend to like people based on how we feel when we're around them. And if mm. we're around someone who just looks so amazing that that makes us feel, you know, not great at all by comparison, then what, what, what we think that we're going to get this idea of connection is not admiration is not the same as connection. Admiration is a really poor substitute for connection, I think. You're absolutely right. And I, I really feel that um, old Alice, maybe like seven, eight years ago, just went out for admiration and like was so guarded, never let people in. It was very much like, just like the way I look, but don't get too close. Um, and I spoke on a previous podcast not that long ago. Oh no, it actually came out last week about how like the first kind of two years of me and my partner's relationship you know, I don't remember very much of it because I was so consumed by food, by how I looked, by body image, you know, all that sort of stuff that I actually have very little recollection. I mean, thank God he stayed around, but <laughs> um, I have very little recollection of it because my mind was so consumed with other things. Um, and I, I, so I can totally empathize with people when they say, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. And they're so consumed by feelings of inadequacy, um, self-hatred you know all this stuff so yeah I, I totally get it now I would love to plug your podcast because I'm going to go and listen to like every single episode after this it sounds amazing <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll put the link to your um, podcast in the show notes and we'll put a link to the intuitive eating book as well Sarah thank you so much for your time today like it's been such I think this might actually be one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done so thank you because it's been so insightful I feel like you just um, you really answer with such kindness and compassion and I think that this subject really deserves that it needs empathy kindness compassion because it's tough it's really tough and um, yeah I'm just so grateful for your time thank you so so much thank you Alice thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.